Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas About Reading, Writing, and Talking. Dialogue, human talking, is such a close interaction, close bind between the listener and the speaker, that neither the listener nor the speaker are terribly separate, nor is the talk separate from the speaker or the listener. It is something that's happening in between them. When you suddenly have an idea of language that can be separated from the person who is speaking as well as from the person who is listening, and that you can work on it, then the language itself becomes a technology. And the technology is writing, something we tend to think of as the very hallmark of civilization. But it's as talkers, not writers, that we begin our lives. And it's as talkers, not writers, that we evolved. What influence then has writing had on us and on our societies? There's a story about the origins of writing in one of Plato's dialogues, the Phaedrus. It began, he says, in Egypt, where it was invented by the god Thoth. Thoth revealed his invention to the king of Egypt and told him that writing would make his people wiser and improve their memories. But to the god's surprise, the king declared that he thought it would have the opposite effect. If men learn this, he told Thoth, it will implant forgetfulness in their souls. They will cease to exercise memory because they will rely on what is written. Your invention, he concluded, will make men seem to know much, while for the most part they know nothing. It will fill them not with wisdom, but with the conceit of wisdom. In Western culture, we think of literacy as the miracle. And if only everybody else were literate, how great the world would be. If only all the people in prisons could read, we wouldn't need prisons anymore. Those assumptions are just fallacious. Literacy is the problem. Literacy is not the solution to every other problem. It's the problem. Let's find out just what literacy is and what it does to us and what it's doing to others. What literacy does to individuals and societies is the subject of this three-part repeat series on ideas. The series is written and presented by David Cayley, and it's based on conversations recorded at a conference in June 1987 at the University of Toronto. Can I have your attention, please? Welcome to our conference on orality and literacy. We have gathered in this place, both as speakers and as auditors, a distinguished group of scholars who have devoted their work to advancing our understanding of oral language and written language and the social and psychological implications of both of those. These topics were first pursued here at the University of Toronto by Harold Innes and Marshall McLuhan. When David Olson convened the conference on orality and literacy at the University of Toronto, it marked a special occasion. Because of the subject, because of the interesting and varied group of scholars who were there, and because of the place, it was in Toronto during the 30s and 40s that Eric Havelock, who would go on to write the influential preface to Plato, first pondered the impact of literacy on ancient Greece. In Toronto in 1950, that Harold Innes published his path-breaking book, Empire and Communications, in which he described how societies have been shaped by their means of communication. In Toronto in 1962, that Marshall McLuhan brought out the Gutenberg Galaxy, his seminal statement on the social and psychological consequences of literacy. And now, in 1987, scholars from several continents and a variety of academic disciplines 
were gathering in Toronto to compare notes and exchange sober second thoughts on the thesis that Havelock, Innes, and McLuhan had first put forward, that writing changes the world. I was there to cover the conference for ideas, but I was aware that conferences don't usually lend themselves to radio. Scholars read papers, sometimes badly, use technical language, and occasionally address their remarks to colleagues rather than a general audience. So instead of broadcasting entire lectures, I decided to improvise a studio in the basement and try to reproduce the conference proceedings in interview form. It's on these interviews that tonight's program is mostly based. A final word about the conference before we begin. It was called Orality and Literacy, and I suspect that for people outside the field, the term orality may require some explanation. Part of the problem is that Freud and his followers got to the word first and gave it a strongly sexual connotation. So for many, the word is more apt to conjure up an infant sucking at the breast than non-literate communication. But non-literate communication is what it meant to the scholars who gathered at the University of Toronto last summer. And they have good reasons, I think, for trying to adapt the word to their own purposes, mainly that they need a positive description for what they would otherwise have to call non-literacy or illiteracy, all negative terms which describe orality in terms of the absence of literacy. To call a people without writing pre-literate or their epics oral literature defines everything in relation to writing. As one wit said at the conference, it's like calling a horse a wheelless automobile. The terms orality and oralism solve the problem by challenging the exclusive privileges of literacy in our worldview. They give oral modes of communication separate but equal status with written ones. And they put literacy in perspective as one of many ways of apprehending the world. The first to speak at the Orality and Literacy Conference, the first by right of scholarly achievement as well as years, was Eric Havelock. Fellow scholars and ladies and gentlemen, I apologize for my slightly decrepit condition, but um, an interview with the surgeon has uh, left me no choice but to be careful. Going back 20 years or even less, I do not think that the program of a colloquium such as this one would have carried the title Orality and Literacy. To be sure, Eric Havelock was a professor of classics at the University of Toronto between 1929 and 1947. Harold Innes had listened to him lecture on Homer in the very hall where he spoke last June. And after that, he headed the classics departments at Harvard and Yale. He was one of the first to break the spell of literacy and to recognize the unique achievements of oral societies, such as ancient Greece. His first clue that ancient Greece had to be understood as an oral, as well as a literate society, came when he read the work of Milman Parry. It was Parry who first realized what Rousseau had noticed in the 18th century, but everyone had since forgotten, that the most revered author of classical antiquity, Homer, was not an author at all. He was a singer of tales, orally composed and orally transmitted, and only later written down. What gave it away was what Parry called epithets, unvarying stock phrases like 
the wine-dark sea, the rosy-fingered dawn, or the gray-eyed goddess. Perry came to this conclusion purely in the, by looking at the text and reading it in his study. He began with the epithets attached to heroes. Uh, uh, son of so-and-so. Why keep on calling him son of so-and-so? Why do that? And he asked himself a psychological question and really and answered, well, it's, it's a filler. It helps the, the, the lion, and if it helps the lion, then that means he's not a writer. He's doing it in his head. That's how he started. And he wrote this thesis for his MA at Berkeley, and they passed it and then told him there was no future for him at Berkeley. Because, of course, at that time, Homer was still regarded with great reverence as, as in those terms in which you look at uh, Dante or Milton as a purely literate composer, or Virgil, for that matter. Parry found empirical support for his theory that Homer was no writer in Yugoslavia. There, he and his assistant, Albert Lord, heard the songs of contemporary epic reciters, epics which had never been written, sung by men who couldn't write, and found in them many similarities to the Homeric songs. This is one of Albert Lord's recordings. Eric Havelock was inspired by Parry and Lord's work and began to look for further support for the emerging picture of Homeric Greece as a purely oral culture. My best source, I found, was uh, in the relations of Captain Cook, Tahiti. I've used them in my written work to illustrate the point. He, he encountered a society, and naturally he had no conception of how to report it, and he exhibits all the prejudices of a literate person who thinks this is not mild amusement. But he describes, in fact, guilds of singers, and uh, both dramatists and, uh, and epic uh, reciters, who uh, perform at regular intervals every week, perhaps, and the populace attend, and um, they are exposed to this stuff continually. Guilds of bardic singers existed not only in Tahiti, but in ancient Greece as well. In Greece, they were called Homeridae, the sons of Homer, and they recited the epics at regular intervals. Their songs were inspired by the muses, the nine sisters who were the daughters of memory. Sing in me, O muse, begins the Odyssey, and through me tell the story. But their recitations were very different than what we call poetry today. Whereas with us, poetry has become entertainment and uplift, the role of poetry for... Um, an oral society is functional. Its role is to conserve the tradition, and it does so indirectly. It doesn't say what the tradition is. It tells you what it is all the time by the kind of stories that it narrates. Can you give an example, say, from the Iliad? Well, yes, the first book of the Iliad, um, uh, you uh, have a quarrel, all right? Well, it's, you have a description uh, between two leaders, you have to settle it, so the whole process of coming together to discuss the problem and trying to settle it is described in the first book. It's, it's sort of an essay in elementary law. Uh, the contestants refuse to accept the verdict. And the lesson of the Iliad is that if you do that, look what happens if you, if you refuse. That's an example. Now, that is not taught directly. That's taught through the tale. You tell it through the tale indirectly. 
And it's not inventive. It's not fiction as we understand it at all. It's not the creation of a free mind. It is a, it is a, a bard all the time responding to and telling his tale according to what his people also want and expect to hear. They want, the tale may entrance them, but they don't want people to act out of line without getting it, and they don't. <laughs> Eric Havelock describes the function of poetry in oral society as storage, the conservation of culture. The epics were a kind of oral encyclopedia. This requirement disappeared with writing. Around 700 BC, the Greeks invented the precursor of our modern alphabet, a phonetic alphabet, which for the first time actually represented not whole words or syllables, but phonemes, the component parts of speech. Writing began to supplement musicae, the traditional oral recitation. Initially, it was used to support orality rather than transform it. 250 years later, the great Athenian statesman Pericles still probably couldn't read or write. But gradually, the practice of writing was changing Greece. You're reducing the call on the memory. You're reducing the need to narrativize all experience. And you're reducing the need to make your subjects people all the time. They've got to be people under oralism, doing things or not doing them, obeying or disobeying, and so forth and so on. And this makes possible the selection of new terms, new non-personal terms, to be subjects of sentences. Instead of saying that Agamemnon decreed so-and-so, you have uh, a selection of a non-person decay. I don't know whether to call it justice, but I'll use that word. Justice does so-and-so. That is the great transition, when you start to have a uh, poetry followed by a prose which, in which subjects like justice start to behave on their own. And this, this develops slowly into a notion that since they're non-persons, they're not really doing anything. What are they doing? They're existing. And you get the notion of their existence and their truth or their reality or whatever, replacing the great portrait of Achilles or anyone else doing. There he is, fighting, quarreling, loving, talking a lot of the time. But he's not... He's not pronouncing ideas or principles. He's just himself, as we say. Instead of that, you get a justice which cannot behave like that. It's ridiculous. So gradually, justice or war or peace or whatever start to become the abstract subjects of abstract statements. The idea that justice really exists as a subject, a thing in itself, transforms morality, codes of behavior. In oral society, according to Eric Havelock, morality is conventional, practical, actual, and concrete. It consists in doing the done thing. People act justly or unjustly, but there is no ideal justice to which their acts can be compared. Writing changes this. Because the pressure to memorize is gone, 
and because writing has an independent existence outside the writer, abstract ideas appear, and morality becomes a formal system with a life of its own, and not just a code of practice. Eric Havelock thinks that the change is not entirely to the good, that the morality of orality, for example, is part of the genius of the Greek drama. Books that have been written describing the moral principles of justice and so on in drama are, in my opinion, largely horse manure because they will not face the fact that you do not get statements uh, defining justice in Greek drama. You only get people behaving justly or unjustly according to their lights. And in the Agamemnon, if you study the diction used, you find that at various times uh, all the characters claim they are just. All of them. <laughs> Within their lights. Right. Uh, you don't get any systematic moralism, in short, right. in Greek drama. And that's one of the great secrets. That's why it has a powerful voice for today, because the, the tragedies of our century have undermined powerfully the old liberal belief that we were all progressing towards beauty, truth, and goodness in an in a increasingly moral world, obviously we're not. Uh, we haven't. And Greek drama calls us back to the uncertainties of life and the, and the moral problematics uh, rather than the assured formulas and uh, reminds us that we're insecure. And the best thing is to be cautious rather than to aspire to the ultimate there's no, there are no absolutes in Greek drama. And, of course, Plato created the absolute as a form of thought, the absolute, the absolute goodness. And as I get older, I see this more. I used to be, when I was young, I was much more a Platonist than I am today. I begin to see a lot of this as a disaster, really. For better or for worse, Eric Havelock thinks that it's writing which leads eventually to the idea of the absolute. Our words must first exist outside us before we can begin to think of them as having an independent existence, as beauty, truth, or justice. And he thinks that the idea of the self comes into existence by the same means. As long as you are dealing with oral communication, oral thinking as you speak, it is difficult to think or to visualize, think of, what you say is separate from yourself. It's really, you, you think it over, mm -hmm. all right? But when it's, when it's down on papyrus, not only have you started to objectify knowledge visually with the eye instead of with the ear, but you've put it down there, and although you said it, it's not you. Where, what are you? You yourself have become a maker of speech which is there as an object, separate from you. And its separation creates your separation. So you become you in a sense in which you never were before. The separation of the knower from the known creates a new psychological space. Mental existence begins to seem as real as physical existence. The transformation can be traced from Homer to Plato in the use of the word psyche, in Homer, psyche refers to the ghosts or shades of the dead, and they appear as gibbering, insubstantial shadows 
in every way inferior to the living. Eric Havelock gives the example of a famous scene in Book 11 of the Odyssey, in which Odysseus meets the shades of the dead and must allow them to drink warm blood before they can regain enough substance to speak with him. But by Plato's time, the psyche had become the self, that part of us which is more real than our bodily existence, just as Plato's archetypal forms or ideas are more real than their earthly shadows. This is not to say, of course, that writing completely banished oral culture from Greece. There was an accommodation. The muse, as Havelock says, learned to write, but she also remained the muse. And even though Plato became a writer, his dialogues are still oral forms, probably meant to be performed in his academy, the text continually brought back to life by the voice. Jan Swearingen teaches at the University of Texas in Arlington and is a close student of the work of Eric Havelock. She's currently studying the balance between orality and literacy in the school curriculum of classical antiquity. She finds oralism still vital right into the late Roman period. People learned pieces of so-called literature, but they, used, they learned them in an oral medium. They heard them, and then they recited them back. Writing was used... Uh, minimally, and only as an aid to this oral assimilation and production of both literary and rhetorical pieces that were delivered orally. And one of the reasons for that is that it was a, a manuscript culture at best. Studies of how many books, how many manuscripts were actually circulating in Cicero's century, in the first century B.C., for example, suggests that very, very few people read, but nearly everyone who was educated at all knew a lot of Greek and Latin literature. But they knew it not because they had read it. They knew it because they had heard it. They had heard it recited. They had, they had had to recite it themselves in the schools. So we've got a, a very useful example of a non-text-centered curriculum in this classical period that has not been sufficiently studied, I don't think, because we have assumed that, until recently, that in Cicero's century, the first century B.C., uh, people were sitting in schools reading their little books, just like British schoolboys in the 1900s. And I think the, the, that in the 1900s, what the German and British and French uh, archaeologists did when they looked at classical literature was to project their own situation back onto classical literature and to assume that this marvelous Homeric canon that, that Havelock talks about had been written and that proper British schoolboys were sitting there in the 700s BC <laughs> reading Homer. If we could see that they produced what they produced in an in almost exclusively oral culture without the aid of texts, then all sorts of possibilities open up for our own time. We can feel less tied to the, the texts or, or less uh, dogmatic about shoving texts down the throats of little children at a very early age. In the final program of this series, I'll come back to Jan Swearingen's views and Eric Havelock's on the proper balance between orality and literacy in our schools. For now, I'd just like to underline her point about the continuing vitality of oral forms in classical culture. Literacy doesn't destroy orality. It modifies it, and is itself modified in turn. 
There's always an accommodation, a trade-off, and a tension. Once writing exists, there are as many possible relationships between literacy and orality as there are cultures. Eric Havelock was one of several people who generated what I'm going to call the literacy hypothesis, the idea that literacy has distinct, identifiable, and revolutionary effects on thinking. The next person I'm going to introduce adds another dimension to this view, the idea that literacy drastically alters our sensory experience. He's Derek de Kirchhoff, a student and colleague of the late Marshall McLuhan's, and now, along with David Olson, the co-director of the McLuhan program at the University of Toronto. He begins with a description of orality. See, when you speak, the mind and the body themselves are not separate. You speak with your whole body. I mean, I'm a Frenchman, I always make <laughs> movements with my hands and arms when I speak, so I suppose up to a point that could be projecting. But when people speak, they really use their whole body, and they use their whole face, they use... Um, they use space around them, and they actually are playing with space around them. The sensorial content of direct human dialogue is enormous. There's, there are a lot of, all the senses are involved. Uh, of course, vi vision and hearing, but also touching. In our very proper alphabetic cultures, we tend not to touch each other. But a lot of people in other cultures have to touch each other to make sense. And a lot of people have to do more than that Arabs, for instance, are well known for having, and this is what Hall says, for having to smell each other. Just the mere mention of this, you can hardly put this on, you know, uh, public radio because people hate even the evocation of smell in our culture. They hide it as much as they can. But in order to understand somebody in certain circles in, uh, in, in northern Africa, you actually have to be less than 20 centimeters apart because then you can smell the person. And smelling is part of the communication. You can see how completely multisensorial and contextualized and concrete is the relationship of orality. Writing gets rid of a lot of the senses. Alphabetic writing gets rid of all of them. This is the nub of de Kirchhoff's argument, that writing, and particularly alphabetic writing, replaces the rich sensory content of speech with abstract, disembodied meanings. He emphasizes alphabetic or phonetic writing because of the way in which he thinks it works. The phonetic alphabet, which the Greeks invented around the 7th century BC, breaks down speech into its basic units. All previous writing systems had used symbols to represent entire words or syllables. The letters of the alphabet were the atoms of speech, its ultimate particles. With other writing systems, the reader still had to supply context from the real world of speech in order to decode the writing. You cannot, for instance, read a word in Chinese without knowing what it means and what it sounds like. But the phonetic alphabet is a pure code rather than a way of representing memories of speech. 
It analyzes words into units that have no meaning in themselves, what's a P or a B, but which allow you to efficiently reconstruct the meaning. The alphabet, in other words, extracts the meaning from speech, but obliterates the actual experience of speaking. It allows us to interiorize language. Some scholars have argued that the difference between the phonetic alphabet and other writing systems is trivial compared to the difference between writing and not writing. De Kirchhoff disagrees. He thinks it's the phonetic alphabet which makes the difference. For him, the alphabet is an analyzer of speech, a word processor, and it has produced a culture which is extraordinarily analytical, a culture whose genius it has been to take things apart. And de Kirchhoff thinks that what ends with the splitting of the atom, or the cracking of the genetic code, begins with the alphabet. Our commitment is to meaning, and is to meaning completely decontextualized. We are writing in the West with systems that enable us to yank the information out of its original context and not only displace it in terms of the new context in which we, we might want to use it, but even within itself, the information itself that we have taken out of a context can be broken down in little bits and reorganized within itself. I compare this to the recombination principle of the DNA. Why are we such technocentric people? It's because at the basis of the operation of working out new technologies and working out new inventions is this principle of abstracting the stuff of a situation or a context working on that stuff or that information content of that context and then redistributing it, recombining it. We have been doing recombinant DNA with our culture from the time that the Greeks invented the alphabet. Derek de Kirchhoff sees the invention of the alphabet as a watershed, perhaps the watershed in human history. This is the essence of what I've called the literacy hypothesis the idea that a great divide separates literate from oral society. Not everyone who attended the Literacy and Orality Conference agreed with this view. There were skeptics as well. One of them was psychologist Jerome Bruner, a leader in what is sometimes called the Cognitive Revolution in Psychology, and now a professor at the New School for Social Research in New York. He doubts, for example, whether the invention of the phonetic alphabet can by itself explain anything. It's interesting, when somebody tells me that there was a technology there and that changed people's minds, I think about the fact that the digging stick in the East Africa of Australopithecus was there for about 10,000 years before it started being used in any significant way that made any difference for agriculture. And also bring up the fact that the Mayans who built those interesting pyramids, the very same Mayans who had all those calendrical inventions and the rest of it, had also invented the wheel and the axle, which they used as a prayer wheel. What they did was not incorporate that into their technology for moving stones at all, which they pulled along on travois rather than using the wheel. So why didn't the wheel affect them then? It was there. I want to find out what it takes for somebody to use a particular technology, to incorporate a particular technology as an aid to thought. Mm -hmm. um, you need something of that order. It is not sufficient to talk just about alphabetization, 
producing Plato. Carts don't give birth to horses, was Jerome Bruner's epigrammatic summary of his critique. I leave it as a question whether this actually refutes to Kirchhoff and Havelock. It is certainly true that the phonetic alphabet by itself cannot produce classical Greece. But horses don't give birth to carts either, and whether classical Greece could have existed without the phonetic alphabet is another question. Another line of critique came from psychologist Carol Feldman, a colleague of Jerome Bruner's from New York. In her talk at the conference, she first defined what she called the general claim, which is essentially what I've called the literacy hypothesis, particularly the idea that literacy is a precondition for reflective critical thinking, thinking about thinking. Having identified this claim, she decided that the way to investigate it was through anthropology, with its many and diverse experiences of oral society. What she found were various reports which seemed to contradict the idea that oral peoples lack the means to think reflectively, particularly the reports of Renato and Michelle Rosaldo about the Ilongot people of the Philippines. Eventually, she concluded that the effects attributed to literacy by the general claim were actually the effects of something more universal, something which she called genre. A genre is a form of discourse, a means of organizing our understanding, and a way of drawing life into certain culturally sanctioned patterns. My feeling is that it's the genre that accounts for the effects on thinking. It is the whole form of organization. The genre may be written, or it may be a talk genre, but it's a whole constellation of things, and you can't parse out of that constellation simply the mechanics of whether it's written or spoken as a way of explaining its effects. So let me give an example of that. If in an oral culture you have a certain kind of talk, as in the Ilongot, whom I spoke about last night, which is used for negotiation, this work was done by the Rosaldos, and they describe in the Ilongot negotiatory talk, which is called purang, a special kind of intonation, a special vocabulary, a special grammatical pattern, and there are a lot of special markers. Ilongot Purang is full of talk about the words themselves, about the talk itself, and it's full of mental language, what I think, what you believe, what you believe I believe, and so on. The Ilongot expressions in a Purang matter in their actual wording in the same way that the actual words of text matter when it's taken as text. The reply <clears throat> to an expression in Purang by the next speaker is very often an interpretation of some metaphoric expression used by the prior speaker. Moreover, in um, the nature of Purang, it is the case that sometime later people will, in general discussion, discuss the meanings of the actual words used. What I'm saying is that that genre scaffolds or makes possible, in Bruner's sense, a certain kind of thinking about thinking. It's not material to it, whether it's written or oral. What's crucial is the organization. Now, it happens that for the Ilongot, that is an oral genre. So maybe for them, it's crucial that it's oral. 
And if we have a form of organization that facilitates thinking about thinking in that way, which we do in the scientific mode that interests David Olson so much, it's probably crucial to it that it's written. But it's the entire constellation of the thing, the form of organization, its mode of expression, whether written or oral, that scaffolds the kind of thinking that goes on in it, and not simply it's being written or oral. After Carol Feldman offered this subtle and interesting argument on the first evening of the Literacy and Orality Conference, David Olson, the conference organizer, took the platform. During Carol Feldman's talk, he said, he'd been asking himself, who invited this woman? The answer, of course, was he had, and his good-natured joke was a way of acknowledging that she really had posed a fundamental challenge to the literacy hypothesis. Part of this challenge was an implicit question about whether the literacy hypothesis is ethnocentric. Can it account for the Ilongot as well as the Greeks? It's not a question which I think can be answered yet. The conversation between anthropology and literacy and orality studies is really just beginning. So on what remains of tonight's program, I'm going to put the literacy hypothesis, the idea that literacy is a kind of historical great divide, through two further changes by examining it in relation to two more cultures. The experience of India with literacy is interesting in several ways. Classical India was extraordinarily wary of writing and quite consciously restricted its use. But in the process, it developed an oral culture with many of the attributes of a literate one. Dr. R. Narasimhan of the Tata Institute of Bombay was one of two Indian scholars at the Orality and Literacy Conference and he explained the attitude of classical India towards writing. The tradition has explicitly undervalued writing. In fact, it has been, um, you know, there have been injunctions explicitly stated that uh, those who write down the scriptural texts will so on go to hell. And, uh, you know, there have been all kinds of uh, prohibitions against uh, writing. And writing has always been undervalued. And even when writing came into practice, it was used for very peripheral purposes. Dr. Narasimhan thinks that this may have been because of the high value India gave to the voice. Sound has an important place in Indian cosmology, and the seed syllables of mantras, or prayer chants, have an important place in Indian religious practice. But though classical India deprecated writing, it was not an oral society in the sense that Homer's Greece was an oral society. It was closer to what we would call a literate society, in the sense that it cultivated philosophy and transmitted a body of texts and interpretations of those texts from generation to generation. India, it seems, had a sort of literate orality, a hybrid which confounds Western categories. In this theory, Western theory, uh, or Western point of view, literacy is defined in a rather narrow way as um, the ability to read and write. See, it is... Um, equated with script literacy. Now, that clearly cannot, I mean, that definition clearly cannot be put to use if you want to look at the Indian tradition where 
there seems to be a literate underpinning to oral practices. So it cannot be that um, uh, orality based was based on writing. So that uh, requires literacy to be looked at from the point of view of more, more basic uh, conceptualizations. So in this paper that I presented in the symposium here, that was what I was trying to do. You know, I was trying to formulate a view of uh, what I call literateness, which doesn't equate it with um, the use of script. Dr. Narasimhan defines literateness not as the ability to read and write, but as the presence of mind which is necessary for critical thinking. And he thinks that India's experience shows that this type of thinking can exist without writing. What the Indians seem to have done is to formulate oral texts so that instead of having, let us say, a written grammar of a language, supposing you encapsulate the whole of the grammar in the form of uh, verses so that it becomes a poem. Okay? Then it becomes available for uh, memorizing. So instead of having books printed on pages, you carry the books in your head. Could we find someone in India today who had, let's say, memorized the Vedas in a tradition where it had been continuously passed on orally without reference to texts? Yes. Yeah. In fact, uh, there are, uh, you'll find, um, I don't know, I mean, uh, there may, may not be a whole lot of them, but I, I would think you'll find at least um, 100 people, something other number, yeah. you know. In the Indian term, you know, these people will be called pundits, right. which means learned people. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of them will be quite old people. The preservation of the Vedas is just one of many examples of how India achieved a complex civilization with very little recourse to writing. All its arts and sciences were mapped onto memorable sequences of words or syllables and transmitted orally from teacher to student and from generation to generation. Even mathematics was preserved and transmitted in this way. If you have to refer to exact number sequences, mm -hmm. then you map them on to some um, uh, symbolic notion. Like, for example, there are four Vedas and there are seven stars and three something else and eight directions, let us say. So you can map um, the number four into Vedas and uh, three into, I don't know, maybe you can say Trinity and uh, you can map <laughs> eight into directions. Right. So you will compose now 438 as uh, Vedas, Trinity, direction, things like that, you see. So since you know the context, that in this context this ought to be reinterpreted as a number sequence, then you can interpret them as number sequence. Preserving everything orally had its limits, of course. Mathematics, for example, could only develop so far without a written notation. But Indian orality was a remarkable achievement, and it sheds an interesting light on the literacy hypothesis. For example, the idea that abstract ideas are a product of writing. Dr. Narasimhan's analysis of the Indian experience suggests that they may be a product of literateness, not writing as such. And if literateness can exist within oral modes, then perhaps our categories themselves need to be modified.
Our final destination tonight is northern Canada. There, anthropologist Anne Bennett of Queen's University has been studying literacy in four Cree communities. Her findings also throw into question certain aspects of the literacy hypothesis. They show us a people who seem to have become literate virtually overnight, but who incorporated literacy into their way of life without identifiable effects. The Cree became literate in the 1840s when a Methodist missionary stationed at Norway House invented a syllabic script for the Cree language. It proved to be a remarkably economical way of writing, and it spread very rapidly. The Indians took them the script and left Norway House with the knowledge in their heads, taught each other, uh, met other Indians, taught each other, it spread by a, a process of person-to-person -person communication, basically. And until about 10 years later, uh, French missionaries, oblate missionaries on the James Bay coast, which is a thousand miles distant from Norway House, uh, reported that all the adult Cree in Fort Albany were able to read and write a kind of shorthand, as they called it. And, well, even our own research, I mean, we've interviewed 440 people now. At least a third must be, of them must be over the age of 40. And I think we've only found two individuals that couldn't read or write. How do you explain the speed with which it spread? Well, that's something that I've... I mean, this has been, to me, the, the, the real interest in, in the research. You hear so much about people not being able to learn to read. You hear so much about functional illiteracy. You hear so much about dyslexia and children in the classroom who can't learn to read. And then all of a sudden you discover people that, I mean, where the literacy spread through them like an epidemic. I mean, I, I think of it as a kind of cognitive rash, you know, right through. But similar reports also among the Cherokee, that they learned to read and write. Uh, in 1820, their chief developed a, a also syllabic alphabet for them, and there are stories of Cherokees meeting each other. Do you know how to read? They're just two strangers meeting on the road. No, I don't know how to read. Oh, well, you've, you've got to learn. Well, sit down here for an hour, and I'll teach you, and that sort of thing. And the Cherokees also achieved nearly universal literacy, and uh, the U.S. government was so upset by this development. I mean, these primitives shouldn't be able to read and write that they, uh, they moved them on to North Dakota and smashed all their printing presses. Yeah, they destroyed everything that they had to write, uh, print with. They could still write, of course, but all the printing material that they had so laboriously developed for their newspapers, I think they had a weekly newspaper at one point, they, they were destroyed on orders from Washington. Does the way in which people taught each other have something to do with the rapid diffusion too, do you think? Well, I think that the ways they taught each other were very typically Cree. Uh, the Cree don't like to have... They don't go well. They're not comfortable with oughts. Like, you ought to do this and you ought to do that. It's almost anathema to them. And so when they taught themselves to read and write, they did it in a very typical way, which was that there was no standard way of, of learning how to read and write uh, in Cree. Uh, adults usually taught children in their own family, but sometimes children taught children. And adults sometimes taught adults. And as I was saying earlier, also... Uh, I've not heard of children teaching adults, but there's nothing with the Cree to think that it didn't happen that way. They, they wouldn't mind if somebody knows something and you don't know it well, go, okay, go ahead, learn it from them. There weren't any institutional supports for this. There weren't any schools, there weren't any teachers, there wasn't any paper, and there weren't any pens early on. So nobody had come along and said, well, you, this, is, this is how you teach somebody something. So 
I guess they taught as they've always taught, by showing and, and helping the other person to do it. Did the ability to read and write change the society in specific ways? I don't think it did. I, I They didn't build up a... Uh, a kind of body of literate texts. I don't know if we could really expect that after 150 years. They did eventually have the Bible. And I, literacy with the Cree has always had a highly spiritual element to it. But I don't think, I, I don't think that the literacy itself changed the society very much. I, I think people found vacuums there were gaps in the things that they were able to do for various reasons, uh, partly because they were spread out. There were other things I think they were unable to do because of certain kinds of etiquette in their own society, which don't allow certain kinds of, make certain kinds of interactions very uncomfortable, and so they're easier to do by writing letters. Uh, and I, I think it made those things easier to do. It, there were things that they that they didn't have that then they were able to do they used to write letters in birch bark with charcoal and uh, send them along with travelers, or they could leave them at the Hudson Bay trading post, or they could leave them at the church, or they could leave them in trap line, cabins on the trap line. There's quite a few cabins spread around. If they knew that other members of their family passing in that general direction would always kind of stop in to say hi to Uncle Fred or whoever was staying there and then leave the message there for them once they had literacy. But I don't, I, my feeling is it didn't uh, profoundly change them. What's happened? to this form of, of writing? Well, after World War II, and I can only speak for the four communities we've been working in, but uh, which are all in northern Ontario. In all four communities, uh, full-time schooling came in after World War II. Up until the time of the introduction of the school, it appears that parents and families were still taking pains to teach their children to read and write syllabics. Once the school comes in, its avowed aim is to teach people to become literate, and so the parents seem to just have shed this chore of parenthood among the Cree and said, okay, let the schools teach the kids to read and write. And the schools did that, but they taught them to read and write English. They didn't teach them to read and write Cree, and they wouldn't even allow them to speak Cree in the schools until about 1970. I mean, it was... Uh, which. Uh, I think must have been fairly traumatic, you know, for little six-year-old kids showing up in first grade knowing not one word of English. But let's say for the last 10 years or so, they have been teaching Cree syllabics in the school. So now you've got youngsters coming up who've been taught Cree in the school, but they just haven't picked it up as well as the old folks did from their parents. You get terrible situations where the young people are not really very fluent in English, and they're not fluent in Cree, and so they're not really very... They don't have... Uh, they don't have the tools to express certain abstract concepts. And, I mean, they, they, must, uh, they must be so hampered. I mean, it, it's like being inarticulate. Anthropologist Ann Bennett of Queen's University. Whether the Cree will be able to preserve their writing system remains tragically in doubt. But the history of Cree writing before English schooling is what Ann Bennett calls one of the great success stories in the field of literacy. Cree literacy was remarkable for the speed with which it spread, the ease with which it was learned, and above all, the way in which it was adapted to purposes already given in the culture. This recalls Jerome Bruner's point that a technology by itself can't transform a culture. It depends on how the culture sees fit to use it. <laughs> 
India held the technology of writing almost completely at bay, but still achieved a civilization with many of the features usually attributed to literacy. So what does this say to Eric Havelock's views on the relations between writing and philosophy in classical Greece? Or to Derek de Kirchhoff's sense that there is a straight line from the invention of the phonetic alphabet to the splitting of the atom or the cracking of the genetic code? I certainly don't think it invalidates their evocative ideas as applied to our own culture, but it does say, I think, that we need to be cautious about generalizing from the Greek experience or any other. There are obviously many literacies and many oralities, and their effects will vary according to the cultures in which they appear. So next week at this time, I'll turn to the history of our own literacy, from the manuscript culture of medieval Europe to the printing press and on to today. Tonight's Ideas program was written and presented by David Cayley. Technical operations by Ray Falsick, Tim Lorimer, and Lon Tuck. Production assistants, Gail Brownell and Laurie Clayton. Producer, Sarah Walsh. You can get a printed transcript of this three-part series. Send a check or money order for $7 to CBC Enterprises, Literacy, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. And please remember, it will take at least eight weeks for delivery. We've also prepared a reading list for the series, and that's free. Write to us here at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.